thank you for taking the time to talk today. We're all so grateful to you for your tireless leadership, not just during this pandemic, of course, but over the last several decades and across six different administrations. This interview is going to accompany a piece I've written about how we might approach science denialism and distrust of expertise in our deeply polarized society. The challenge isn't new to COVID, but the pandemic's exposed the collective consequences of this resistance to expertise in ways I think we haven't seen before. This has generated, quite understandably, tremendous frustration in the scientific and medical communities, but unfortunately, not a lot of great solutions. Obviously, your scientific expertise has been central to your success in leading us through several global disease outbreaks. But what always strikes me when I listen to you is your empathy and your humanity, qualities that I suspect are critical to overcoming some of this resistance to expertise and bridging the divides that seem to fuel that resistance in the first place. And that's really what I'm hoping to talk to you about today. So I want to start by going back in time a bit, and I want to talk to you about your friendship with Larry Kramer, the famous HIV-AIDS activist who sadly died this past May. For some time during the 1980s, Larry Kramer hated you, and he was very vocal about it. He called you an idiot and a murderer and blamed you for the slow pace of drug development, as well as the exclusion of many with HIV from trials that would potentially have allowed them access to experimental therapies. And then somehow you ended up becoming close friends. So can you talk a little bit about how you overcame your differences with Larry Kramer? Well, yes. I mean, my relationship with Larry is a complicated relationship, but there were some fundamental things that really, I think, clarify. And the clarifying elements that we were both striving and aiming for the same thing. We wanted to get more attention put on the emerging pandemic, as it were. Remember, we're talking now in the mid to late 1980s when Larry really came to the forefront as the iconoclastic leader of this activist movement. What Larry wanted was he wanted the federal government to pay more attention to this emerging plague, as he called it, both from the standpoint of using the government as a bully pulpit to bring attention to it, but also to get more resources, but also to get the community involved in some of the decision-making regarding the design of clinical trials and input into the research agenda. The only Mm -hmm. difficulty was is that there were not a lot of people in the higher levels of government that were paying attention to these pleas on the part of the activist community of which Larry was the leader. So he decided that he needed to gain the attention of people at higher levels of the government. I happened to be, as a government scientist, one of the ones that was actually very visible in in doing many of the things that Larry actually wanted. But since Mm -hmm. I was the so-called face of the federal government, He thought it would be a good idea, and tactically, it was really smart on his part to target me. So he did exactly what you said. I mean, he called me a variety of disparaging names publicly, even wrote a now infamous article in the San Francisco Examiner, uh, front page on the magazine section, you know, an open letter to an incompetent idiot, I call you a murderer, Tony Fauci, (laughs) which certainly got my attention. But what I did, and I think this was one of the, you know, if I might say, one of the smartest things that I've done when it comes to public interaction is that I said to myself, you know, if he is that angry, that for no reason, even for someone who's actually doing things 
that he ultimately wants because I was pushing for more attention to the outbreak, for more resources. If he is attacking me so vehemently, that there must be a really good reason behind that. So I decided I would extend myself and say, you know, don't take this personally. Because many of the people in the scientific and regulatory community, when he would be attacking, they would run for the hills and it would make matters even worse. So they would listen to him and to the activists even less because they were intimidated and afraid of the attacks. Because the scientific community, historically and otherwise, don't want to be attacked for things that they think they're doing for the good of the general public. So I took a chance and I extended myself and decided I wanted to sit down and talk to him and a number of the other activists. And that's how it went from an entirely confrontative relationship to one of a little bit more open-mindedness to hear what the other has to say, to collaboration, to ultimately over the years and over the decades where we became very, very close friends. I mean, really, we became somebody that I cared for very deeply and vice versa. So it's an interesting evolution from trying to gain attention and attacking me publicly to a point where we became very close colleagues and ultimately very close friends. I find that to be such an inspirational story. I now want to fast forward a few decades to the early 2000s. As you know, by then we had safe and effective drugs to treat HIV AIDS, but millions were dying across the world without access to them. So one of your signature achievements, of course, is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, now known as PEPFAR, which has been an unbelievable success and saved millions of lives across the globe. President George W. Bush saw the program as a moral obligation, and you worked very closely with him to spearhead it. But getting PEPFAR approved wasn't easy, and you had to navigate conflicting agendas and ideologies to do this. So can you talk a little bit about some of the obstacles you faced, and also how you managed again and again to focus on the science and transcend partisanship? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the PEPFAR program was a good example of having a very strong and powerful leader in the form of President George W. Bush, who was insightful enough to appreciate the importance of making effective drugs available more widely beyond the developed world. And you're right, there were a lot of obstacles to that. Would the developing world be able to take drugs regularly to the point of making them effective. There were a lot of people who made judgments that might even have been based a bit on some subconscious or below-the-radar screen racism of that you could not effectively get these complicated therapies to people in the developing world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. So there was a challenge right there of people not thinking it was able to be done. And I think it was a credit to George W. Bush, who sent me to Africa and said, I want you to go there and figure out, is there something that we could do that would be transparent and accountable? He did not want to just give money away because he was aware that when you give money to many of these developing nation governments, that it may not get well spent. He wanted to make sure it got into the hands of people who would use it in a way that was for the good of the people who needed the medications and needed the treatment. So he sent me to Africa and he said, go figure out a plan be the architect of a plan, put it together, and then come back to me and let's see if it works. And I did that. And I did that with his full backing. The beauty of it is that he decided he was going to do it. And he didn't even want to tell anybody about it until he had already made up his mind because he thought it would just be a lot of bureaucratic roadblocks in the way. But it was his strong feeling. And he said it 
very explicitly that as a rich nation with many privileges, we have a moral obligation to see to it that people do not die unnecessarily just because of where they happen to live and where they were born, namely in the developing world. And if we have resources and riches and abundance, that we need to figure out a way to help them. And that ultimately turned out to be the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which, as you know, has been responsible for saving literally millions and millions and millions of lives. But it was the right combination. It was the president who had the vision and the moral feeling of doing that. He chose me, and then I had help from my colleagues, too, people like Mark Dibble, who was very helpful to us in putting the program together, and then to work it in a way that was essentially palatable to the country. And we worked on Mm -hmm. it for months, back and forth, back and forth, you know, what version of it, how many people, how much money, how much this, how much treatment, how much prevention, et cetera, et cetera, until finally we got to the end of 2002 and the beginning of 2003. And the president, to his great credit, decided, let's go for it, even though it was going to cost billions and billions of dollars. I mean, I just think that's an example of what can happen when you get extraordinary leadership at the highest levels. In this case, it was at the level of the president of the United States. I just was fortunate enough and privileged enough to kind of be the vehicle of what he wanted to do. Prior to COVID, you wrote and spoke about pandemic preparedness. And during a talk at Georgetown in 2017, you concluded by expressing certainty that we'd face another global disease outbreak. You mentioned influenza and Zika specifically. And then you said, and what about the things that we aren't even thinking about? And obviously, these remarks turned out to be prescient. So had we heeded your warning, how might we have been better prepared? You know, I think that we were reasonably well prepared, particularly because we were stimulated in our preparation by the threat of a number of what we call pre-pandemics. You know, the bird flu, the H5N1, the H7N9. And we did a fair amount of pandemic preparedness. In fact, Prior to the COVID-19 outbreak, we were judged by organizations like the Johns Hopkins University as being the best prepared for a pandemic than any country in the world. So it isn't as if we weren't prepared. But I think even with the best of preparations, it is difficult to have imagined something of the scope and the magnitude of COVID-19, which is historic in its proportions. I mean, it's the worst pandemic of a respiratory illness that we've had in 102 years, dating back to the 1918 historic pandemic, the famous Spanish flu, as it was inappropriately called. So then there were a bunch of mishaps that we had. So even the best preparation, you're going to have a significant amount of suffering, morbidity, and mortality. But What I say now, I mean, you're right, I was very prescient back then. I wish I would not have been so prescient because it would be much preferable if we never had this pandemic that we're dealing with right now. But what we have to make sure is that we do learn from what has happened and we keep the corporate memory that outbreaks occur. They've occurred throughout history, even before recorded history. They're occurring now and they will continue to occur. Sometimes they are curiosities that are relatively trivial in their impact. Sometimes they have profound implications only in a very localized area, such as Zika in Brazil and South America, such as Ebola, first in West Africa, and then in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. 
And then there are those that have global implications, like what we're going through right now. We've just got to remember that when we get through this, which we will get through this pandemic for sure, and we will get back to normality, that when we are in a state of so-called normality, we just don't forget what has happened and what could happen. And that's the reason why we have to maintain a degree of preparedness and not let it slip. In a profile Michael Spector wrote about you for The New Yorker this past April, he quoted the Stanford microbiologist David Relman, who in describing you said, no one is a more tireless champion of the truth and facts. And yet, as we've seen during COVID and of course before, we face tremendous resistance to truth and facts in our country. Do you have any ideas about how we might overcome this resistance? I realize that's a hard question. Well, you know, we have to keep being fluent in our discussions with the public about the importance of science. Unfortunately, there is an anti-science element that we see throughout the world, including in this country. Sometimes it gets manifested with things like anti-vaccines and the anti-vaxxers. I think we need to be transparent in our discussion of science, speak to the general public in a way that doesn't necessarily have to impress them about how smart scientists are. Much more important that scientists are understood so that when you talk about something that is related to science, you do it in a way that's broadly and generally appreciated by the general public. The more you do of that, the more things that are based on science will be accepted by the public as opposed to met with a great degree of skepticism that often happens when scientists speak. So this is related to what you're talking about in terms of vaccine hesitancy, because we're already hearing about potential hesitancy to take a COVID vaccine should one become available. So I've heard, for instance, that some people are worried that if a vaccine is approved too quickly, people won't trust the science behind it. Or another thing that I've been hearing is that distrust of the pharmaceutical industry will prevent some from getting the vaccine. So I'm wondering how you've been thinking about addressing these potential obstacles to widespread vaccination. Yeah, I mean, it gets back to a little bit of what I said a moment ago, that you have to have outreach to the community. You cannot be obtuse in what you talk about. You've got to be completely transparent. You've got to explain the rationale. For example, the misunderstanding that because we're going quickly with a vaccine for this novel coronavirus, that we're cutting corners and we're compromising safety and we're compromising scientific integrity. That's just not the case. The speed is a reflection of technological advances. For example, in the platform technology that we use for different vaccine candidates, the idea that you can get the sequence of a virus within a day or so of recognition that you're dealing with a new virus, that sequence gets put on a public database and you could just pull out the gene of the particular protein that you would like to be expressed in order to get a vaccine to make an immune response against it. You could do in a matter of days to weeks what took months to years to do in the past when you needed to grow up the pathogen, in this case, a virus, and then purify it and activate it or attenuate it and get it into a form for vaccine. We did literally, you know, the dates of it are really striking and telling. The coronavirus sequence went up on a public database on January 10th of 2020. You know, I called a meeting of my staff and said, we really need to start working on a vaccine within a few days, January the 15th. We had gotten the vaccine development program going, 
and 62 days later, we were in a phase one trial. Now, nothing was compromised regarding safety because that had nothing to do with the patient up until the time we started the phase one trial. Then we went into a phase two, and then by July, July 27th to be exact, we went into a phase three trial. So we went from January the 10th of just learning the sequence of the virus to July 27th in a phase three trial, which normally would have taken several years, literally, to do. We did it in a matter of months. There was no compromise of safety, nor was there compromise of scientific integrity. What we did is the federal government made major investments in money, in resources, in order to do things like preparing the clinical trials before we even knew we were going to go into a major multi-center trial. Also, to produce vaccine to the tune of millions and millions of doses before you even know the vaccine works. So what we did was we did things in parallel as opposed to sequentially. And when you do that, you save time. If you are right and the vaccine works, then you saved a lot of time. If you're wrong and you've made that investment, the only thing you lose is money, which is important, but that isn't safety and that isn't scientific integrity. So you have to explain that to people when they say, my goodness, you're going so quickly with the vaccine. Can I trust its safety and can I trust its efficacy? And the answer is, as long as you don't cut corners on safety and as long as you maintain a high degree of scientific integrity, you'll be fine. So we just need to keep getting that message across in a very transparent way to the American public. I mentioned your empathy earlier, and I'd like to come back to that. You have by now done thousands of interviews and press conferences, but one common theme, even as we see people engage in risky behaviors, is that you refuse to cast blame and you try to appeal to people's common humanity. Can you talk a little bit about the role of empathy in public health messaging and maybe tell us a little bit about how you learned it? Uh, Yeah, well, you know, empathy is one of the most important human qualities that you could have if you're going to be interacting with people, particularly on sensitive issues. You know, I have found just from observing the failures of others that when you're trying to change behavior, to assign fault or guilt is always a losing proposition. The easiest way to turn someone off about something is to be accusatory or pejorative in your approach. So, I mean, the idea that you can really understand why someone might be practicing risky behavior and you can understand what circumstances in their life may have put them into that position and get across that you really do understand and care about them because you want this change, because you do care about them. It goes a very, very long way in getting somebody to hear your message. I mean, I don't know how I developed that. I think it goes back as far as my parents when I was a child. My parents were always Mm -hmm. people who I always noticed had a great deal of concern for others. It was very non-self-centered family structure. It was always looking about how you could help other people and how you could be a source of comfort and help to other people. I just learned that as part of my childhood development within the family structure. I think that was amplified in my education. I was Mm -hmm. educated, you know, in elementary school with very devoted nuns, but in high school and college with Jesuit priests who have a historical reputation for service to others and caring about others. So, you know, I think it started off as a 
baby and a child at home and was sharpened during my education. And that's part of what I do right now. So, I mean, I think the idea of empathy comes very naturally to me. And I think it's important, particularly dealing with what I have to deal with in the form of suffering and disease. One of the most distressing aspects of the pandemic has been the disproportionate toll it's taken on minority communities, both medically and economically. But healthcare disparities aren't new. They've been widely recognized for decades, but we haven't made much progress in addressing them. If you were tasked to oversee a national response to healthcare disparities, what would your priorities be? And how do you think moving forward, we can affect more substantive change? Well, you know, I think that there are two components of disparities, some that you can immediately address, like take for the example of COVID-19. The minority communities, particularly African-Americans, Latinx, and Native Americans, and Alaskan Natives, that these individuals, because of the nature of their jobs, have a greater degree of risk of exposure. So they have a greater incidence of infection. That if that being the case, what you could do right now immediately is you can make available testing and access to health care in those communities that demographically are highly concentrated with minority communities. So you can focus and concentrate resources now so that individuals have easy access to testing, get results quickly, can get into a healthcare system quickly. Then there's the long range, because that relates to the fact that not only do minorities have a higher incidence of infection, but when infected, they have a much greater incidence and prevalence of the comorbidities that make it much more likely that individuals will have a serious outcome and a severe disease. And those are the underlying comorbidities of things like diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, obesity, chronic kidney disease. All of those comorbidities are much more represented in the minority population than in the population in general. You're not going to fix that overnight. That's the result of the social determinants of health that put minorities in a position of having a higher incidence and prevalence of these comorbidities. So that's something that you have to make a decades-long commitment to modify and change those circumstances that allow the minority community to have such a higher incidence of these comorbidities. It's certainly not all genetic, that's for sure. It has a lot to do with the kinds of diet you're exposed to, to a variety of other factors that play an important role in why people get comorbidities. Dr. Fauci, I'm so grateful to you for your time and your leadership, and it's a huge honor to get to talk to you, so thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate having the opportunity to uh, do this interview with you.